Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Shining, Part 3, Chapters 14 through 18. Let's start the show. As part of his maintenance of the Overlook Hotel, Jack replaces the roof, but gets stung by a wasp. He kills the wasps and gives the nest to Danny for his room. Somehow, the wasps survive the bug bomb and sting Danny. Danny visits a doctor who provides some insight to Jack and Wendy about Danny's mental state. Back at the hotel, Jack discovers a scrapbook with some interesting history about the Overlook, but, for some reason, lies about it to Wendy. Sean, what do you think about this chunk of the book? Jay, this is the part of the book that I've often found when we're covering longer books by King is where I'm very much entranced by the writing that's going on but the story starts to drag a little bit and that's because I have to stop before I get to some more exciting parts. So unfortunately we chose five chapters where some stuff happens and builds up some character relationship and and some interesting information that we're going to need in the future but it's not necessarily the most exciting part of the book. Unfortunately, unlike last time where we talked about how well King did some of the exposition, I think that a lot of it was a little bit done roughly here and wasn't as engaging for me, specifically chapter 18, where Jack just seems to be reading clippings from a scrapbook and there's just lots of newspaper articles about old people who aren't real characters in the book and who I don't care about and just want to get to the fireworks factory finally. <laughs> yeah, I generally agree. And it's a a struggle of our own making. It's it's just the format of our show where we we somewhat limit ourselves to a certain amount of coverage at a time. And unfortunately, things have sort of fallen into a place where these few chapters just they, they do feel like so much table setting. And what makes it stand out even more is, as you say, it's a, a little bit more clumsily done in terms of the exposition that King provides, and and compared to how well he did earlier, uh, very clumsily done. It really did seem like this, another page of newspaper clipping, another page of newspaper clipping, another, I'm just like, yeah, I get it. Like, show me the one that exactly parallels Danny's experience in his vision to show us that what Danny saw was a real thing and there is like newspaper evidence of this happening maybe one or two other things but it just felt like there were just too many i feel like i didn't need all of that to to get where king was taking me yeah and how we also said that the story really began with the characters and then there was very specific reasons why they had these look backs at their moments in their life in the past mm -hmm. and how that related to now and instead, we get this long chapter of Jack reminiscing about his encounter with the student, George, who he ended up 
beating after George slashes tires and we get the whole backstory about the debate team. And again, it's important, but it was somewhat clumsily done with Jack on the roof and just thinking about all those things. And then what could potentially be a a ham-handed metaphor of the wasp's nest that even Jack sort of realizes like, oh, is this the wasp's nest that is the wasps in my past? And <laughs> yeah, it, it's just not as smoothly done as the conversation that Halloran had with Danny or the conversations that Wendy and Jack had early on. But again, all important stuff, I think, but it's just not to where we need it to be. And, and looking like literally one page ahead when it's, the next chapter is called like Room 217. I have a feeling like we're going to start off with like some really good stuff in the next section, but we got to focus on today, today. Yeah. And all that said, there's a lot of really great stuff going on in this section of the book where we spend some quality time with the characters. And it's like happy time with the characters too. Like Jack and Wendy are the happiest that they've ever been in their marriage. Yep. That's really special. I really love how Jack and Wendy tease each other and there's this like or, or exaggerated lecherous moment that uh where Jack like puts his hand around Wendy's waist and starts grabbing her 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 butt and he, and he says and he like switches to this lecherous uh <laughs> like way of speaking and he says fig fig madame he asked still rubbing dirty pictures unnatural positions <laughs> I love it. I mean, this feels like how spouses would actually talk to each other if they are both in love and sexually attracted to each other and sexually active. And it feels like as natural as anything and real. It doesn't feel lecherous the way kings sometimes can can be when his, his gaze gets a little bit awkward or a little unforgiving. So here, this just feels like a healthy relationship, and that's that's what he wants us to see. Yeah, especially like assuming what comes next, right? Like he wants to set up a a loving moment, especially when they had such rough times prior to this, and Wendy was worried about what's going to happen when we're alone at this uh-huh. hotel. And instead, like you said, like they see they seem it like it's better that it is like a family honeymoon, and the two of them are connecting in ways they hadn't before. King even makes mention about how they're they're concerned because Danny always locks the the door to the bathroom and and King says something like, Well, Jack and Wendy are sort of like free as free can be when it comes to like, oh, we don't even bother shutting the door. And uh-huh. Wendy's walking around in just her panties and not nothing else. And like they do seem to have this healthy, loving relationship. The one place that we see continued development is Wendy worrying about how her son is growing up and how she, at some point she's going to feel that she's a stranger to her son and vice versa. So she's even worrying about like what's the long-term effect going to be and those those moments are nicely done too because they the two of them had their moment where they went into sidewinder and came back with christmas presents and right after that lecherous moment between Jack and Wendy, Wendy's like, "Oh yeah, but my son's getting older and eventually he's going to be different." And it is good the way the relationship is is built up here. Also, Jack and Danny clearly love each other even though they have the capacity of both scaring each other or being angry at the other. But again, for most people, that is totally natural. Mm-hmm. Everybody is occasionally angry with their parents or angry with their children or fearful of how a parent might react to a certain thing or how a child might react to a certain thing. 
we know that there's maybe a little bit more darkness and certainly more supernatural possibilities here in this book. But in these moments, these interactions at this point in the story feel normal. It's just building more of the foundation of like, this is a happy family. They enjoy each other's company. They enjoy, you know, caring about each other. Let's hope that it stays that way. Right. Right. I also like the fact that, like King himself, Jack Torrance is keenly aware of the writing process and what his writing is like. At the Overlook, he's overcome this block that he had with the play that he had been trying to write for the past few years. And a lot of that he realizes was, it's just hard to be a full-time writer while you have a full-time job. And that the job he had at the boarding school really had taken away from his writing. And so now that he's able to write, he realizes, oh, I've made a breakthrough. And what's interesting is that he doesn't care if the writing is successful. Like He doesn't care if the play is going to be produced or if it's going to be well-received or read. He's just proud of the fact that he has finished it and it's going to be at the quality he thinks it should be. And that he thinks once he's made that breakthrough, he'll be able to write on write about something else and maybe write a novel or, or something else. And so you and I had just talked about King's on writing when we were discussing 1408 for our bonus episode. And that whole book is King sort of being very inward looking at like why he writes, how he writes, and the act of writing. And and even in this book, which was 30 years before that, Jack has some of those same thoughts about what writing is. Yeah, I, I really like there's just one little note where Jack is speaking to the doctor and he's explaining like where he's been in the last couple of years and the various jobs and stuff. And he says, writing, which is what I consider my true work. Mm. All creative people can completely relate to that. Yep. I might be doing X, Y, and Z to pay the bills, but I want to be doing my art. That's, that's what I truly do. That is me. That is what makes me who I am and where I am happiest. And for Jack, it's writing. And he also knows that it's something that he's good at. Right. He wants to spend all of his time doing it. And this job allows him to do that. It allows him to stop with the, the, the daily ritual and the grind of teaching, spending all day in the classroom preparing lessons and things like that. He can just focus on the writing. I guess when he's not getting stung by wasps on the roof of the Yeah, but hotel. even then, I mean, it, what's interesting is that the roof work is so mindless to some extent that he can use that time to think. And he thinks yeah. about his writing and he thinks about his past, obviously, and George and how that all led him today. But that you know, sort of brings it back to what we were talking about at the beginning about how a lot of that exposition, the backstory with George, who happens to be a stutterer and Jack at times feels sorry for him and also upset with him for being a stutterer. And that is a little bit cringy and how he deals with that. And and then, you know, like I said, the scrapbook piece maybe was just when I was reading it, but I was just like, oh, I just need to get through this chapter because I don't, I just don't need to, to, to read all these stories that I'm not relating to in any way in this bland newspaper format. It's just not doing it for me. And but it's there for a reason, I think. But it's just hard to get through. But while Jack is reading through the scrapbook, we start to see 
a little bit more of his idiosyncratic behaviors, some of those have made me continue to ask the question of this book and wonder, is Jack a madman? Is he already hmm. like a crazy person who is pretending to be sane? One of the first pieces of evidence we've had of this is that when Halloran met Jack, he was unable to see into Jack's mind. And I had theorized that this was Jack, this was Jack's pre-existing madness, that there was some kernel of madness that, that Jack had built a wall around in his mind that contained the madness, but also acted as like a, a wall that somebody like Halloran with the shine, but maybe a slightly weaker, a weaker version of it couldn't penetrate, whereas Danny can. And we also learn in this section of the book that Jack has rage blackouts. When he attacked George, he like waded in to grab at George and then came back to consciousness after, after just beating George to a pulp. And he didn't remember the time in between those moments. Yep. There's a line that says the last thing he remembered was George holding up the knife and saying, you better not come any closer. And then the next thing was the French teacher holding Jack's arms crying. Stop it, Jack, you're going to kill him. So there's a time jump there. There's a gap in his awareness. And during that gap, he was doing some pretty violent things. Yep. And you're theorizing that perhaps it's the signs of already some sort of madness mm -hmm. that Jack has within him. And and that's definitely a possibility. I mean, we, we, we don't know. It's interesting that he has blackouts that are caused by rage and, and Danny has blackouts too when he has his vision. Mm. that don't lead to rage, right? Like Danny's blackouts are more of a, a visions that he has or, or dreams that where he enters this other, other world. But it, it's interesting that they both have that. What else do you have thinking that Jack might already be mad? Well, there is another line that says um, he was getting better, he, he being Jack. It was possible to graduate from passive to active, to take the thing that had once driven you nearly to madness as a neutral prize of no more than occasional academic interest. And if there was a place where the thing could be done, this was surely it. This line makes me think, is Jack heading to madness or is he already mad? And is that even a distinction worth anything? Like, like mm. it almost seems like Jack is embracing the fact that his frustrations in the past that have led to moments of intense rage where he has blacked out have been because he has felt like the world has acted upon him, that he has been a passive recipient of bad luck or bad circumstance. And he's looking for a way to turn that around, to become an, an active participant in his own life. In doing so, maybe like stepping closer to that, that truly mad space. And maybe the Something about having this this freedom in the hotel can give him that opportunity. While it's it's also giving him the opportunity to do manual labor, to give his mind room to roam and be creative and get writing and, and accomplish some real writing. It's also moving from passive to active might also be moving from sane to to insane. True. And Jack isn't quite aware of this. I mean, obviously he's not aware of, of those moments he blacks out, but he has this dig different vision of himself. He says that he had always regarded himself as a really nice guy, 
was just going to have to learn how to cope with his temper someday before it got into trouble. Hmm. In addition to that, thinking he's a nice guy, he also realizes that he had been an emotional alcoholic just as surely as he had been a physical one. The two of them were no doubt tied together somewhere deep inside him. And that made me think back to when Halloran couldn't get to it, like maybe the alcoholism was part of this and maybe it was the own way that Jack thinks about himself. And like that's another aspect of him that he's either not aware of or only comes out in certain instances. And that's why to him, it, it doesn't seem like himself, that that's another person almost. Hmm. He's only a, not a nice guy under, you know, sometimes in, under certain circumstances and certain conditions. Right. But most of the time, he's all right. Yeah. When in, in reality, he, it's like the exception is when he's not, not that way. Yeah. And, and also like Jack's blackouts are getting more and more frequent and lasting for longer periods of time. The two examples that we encounter in this section of the book are shortly after he is stung by the wasps and uh, when he is reading the scrapbook. Both of those things happen. Then he, he comes back to himself. He comes back to himself on the roof with the wounds from the wasp stings. And he realizes, I should go back down to the ground and treat my, my stings. And he kind of doesn't realize how long he's been up on the roof. Mm. Same with the scrapbook. I could see that he, he could sort of get lost in his thoughts page after page of the scrapbook. The, the very thing that you and I both complained was a little bit too long in the book. But what I think is going on here is that he probably spent more time than King has revealed to us and that Jack is aware of actually just staring vacantly at that scrapbook. Yep. He has been wiping absentmindedly at his mouth and his lips so so much that he actually started to make them bleed. And Wendy returned from her trip to Sidewinder and he wasn't expecting her to be back already. I don't know how long it would take somebody to to flip through all the pages of this scrapbook, but it probably wouldn't take like four or five hours. This is just to show that Jack is losing time. Just like he lost time when he he beat up George, he's losing time again. And it's at these weird moments. Right. Now you've made the case that potentially Jack is either on his way to becoming mad or might potentially already be mad. And the other way of looking at it is this section is the first time we really see it, is that maybe there's something about the hotel itself mm. that is causing this. And whether or not it's causing Jack to be mad or just taking advantage of the fact that he might already be on the verge of madness. But there's so many things that are happening in this section that sort of talk to that. And, and, and obviously the first one is these wasps that attack Danny. Like he is attacked by these wasps. He has dozens of, of stings on his on his hands from when the wasp nest, which Jack supposedly killed with the bug bomb mm -hmm. and was an, an inert wasp nest was put into his room and then have, have attacked him. And what are we supposed to make of that? Like wasps don't come back from the dead like that normally. Yeah. And I would think that under any circumstance with this failed bug bomb, it would kill like 99% of the wasps and maybe one or two might have somehow been too deep inside to get the poison. And then they they come out and they can sting Danny. But by the time Jack goes and throws a, a, a mixing bowl over the, the nest, there are like hundreds and hundreds of wasps coming out of it. Yeah. It seems like there are more wasps in there now than there were when he bug bombed it. Right. So it's starting to feel like something supernatural is going on here. This isn't even wasps coming back from the dead. This isn't even like 
oh, I didn't use the, the right poison. This is, this is an impossible thing. Right. And during the doctor's visit, Danny says this phrase that, that Tony has given to him, this inhuman place makes human monsters. This inhuman place, repeating the same incomprehensible thing over and over, makes human monsters. And so we're obviously meant to think that this inhuman place is the hotel and it's making, not turning, not taking advantage of, but making human monsters. And perhaps the Jack is the one that, that, that this is happening to. Yeah. And then, you know, after I made my way all the way through that interminable chapter with all the, the scrapbook, I was thinking the same thing, which is who put this scrapbook together of all these weird, odd, bizarre things that have happened at the Overlook Hotel? And Jack asks also, whose book was this? And I thought, good question, Jack. That's a good question because that's a creepy scrapbook to put together. Like I have mm-hmm. scrapbooks of family vacations or certain years of my life, but like a scrapbook of all the weird deaths and strange things that have happened and all put together in one book that just happens to be here in the basement where Jack could come across it, not like in a library, not in an office, but like sticking out of a stack of papers in the boiler room. Very odd. Yeah. Normally you collect scrapbooks of things that you're, you want to celebrate in some way. So who would want to celebrate every scandal, every murder, every sideways deal that the, the hotel was involved in. It would have to be somebody who is a little twisted. Or here's a crazy thought, the hotel? I don't know. Maybe. It's just just throwing the idea out there because I, I think what we're getting at here between the, these two things is like Jack seems to be struggling at the Overlook. There are some things that are really working well for him. He's writing again. He's getting to work with his hands. That physical activity is like just getting his creative juices flowing. So he feels like his connection to the hotel as its caretaker, he's really embracing it. He's celebrating it. When he finished the job of putting the new shingles on the roof, he reflects that it seemed that before today, he had never really understood the breadth of his responsibility to the overlook. To that, I I respond, or its sway over him. Mm. There seems to be like a tightening connection between Jack and the hotel. He's stumbling upon these things. He's stumbling upon the wasp nest. He's stumbling upon this scrapbook. So when I say Jack is struggling, he had certain behaviors that were detrimental to his welfare, the safety of his family, things like that before he ever heard of the Overlook Hotel. And now that he's here, it seems that some of them have gone away, but others have gotten worse. I'm leading us to this debate. Did Jack bring his problems with him and the hotel is just sort of a pressure cooker that it's making them worse? Or is Jack somebody who, given the right opportunities and circumstances, would move past his struggles to being a healthy, happy guy, but the hotel is just, to use Tony's phrase, making him into a human monster, right? And that's something... I think we will continue to debate. I am almost positive that we will continue to debate that. So despite perhaps this being a little bit of slow start or a slow section, some good stuff here. I wonder if there's any Dark Tower thinnies. Yeah, I found a few thinnies. The first thinny that I uncovered in this section of the book is that Wendy is 19 years older than Danny. 
Ah. We learn this as she reminisces about her own studies of the Dick and Jane readers, where she looks over Danny's shoulder and sees the the same pictures that she saw when she was a, a little girl in her own grammar school days 19 years before. Well, we don't know exactly how old she was when she gave birth to Danny. It seems that in terms of relative age, there are 19 years between them. Yep. And that, that adds up. Yeah, that makes sense. Like if he's five now and I don't know if this is a thinny or just a trope that Stephen King has, but Jack, when he is roofing the hotel, is wearing a blue chambray work shirt. A blue chambray work shirt? Much like our friend Roland. And this is the first time that I was actually like, what exactly is chambray? And it's slightly different than denim. So it's blue and white cotton put together and it ends up being a softer material than denim, but has a very similar look. But it's always a button-down shirt, right? I believe so, yes. I suspect that King like just grew up wearing the yeah. <laughs> the things because he puts so many of his characters into these these blue chambray work shirts. Another thing that I wanted to call out as a thinny was that there's something that is kind of described the way that, that other King books have described thinnies themselves. And there's a line, could you be expected to live in the love of your nearest and dearest when the brown, furious cloud rose out of the hole in the fabric of things, the fabric you thought was so innocent, and arrowed straight at you? Now that hole in the fabric of things kind of sounds like a thinny, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a, a definition of a thinny. So I know you collected a bunch of 19s. I noticed one. And I noticed it because King, another little quirk of his, is talking about JFK. And there is an article from December 19th, 1963, when the headline reads, Johnson promises orderly transition, says work begun by JFK will go forward in the coming year. Are there any other 19s that you saw, Jay? Well, 1963 all by itself adds up to 19. Oh. So you're December 19th. There's another clipping. Las Vegas Group buys famed Colorado Hotel, the scenic overlook to become Key Club. And that was from April 10th, 1963. So once again, one plus nine plus six plus three. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there is a clipping with the title, Horace M. Derwent requests the pleasure of your company at a masked ball to celebrate the grand opening of the Overlook Hotel. Dinner will be served at 8 p.m. on Masking and Dancing at Midnight, August 29th, 1945. Well, guess what? August 29th, if you add up 8, 2, and 9, is 19. And 1945, if you add that up, is 19. Wow. All this before even writing The Gunslayer. Mm-hmm. I think you might be on the verge of madness, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I've tipped all the way over because I'm cherry picking these. There are so many dates and numbers and other things in the book that are, don't add up to 19, but I am feverishly adding them all up just to check. <laughs> just to check. All right. So what yucking it ups did you have? I think you and I both noticed the same one. Blah. Yeah. The only thing that I wanted to call out for yucking it up is that Jack reads a clipping that describes exactly what Danny saw in one of his visions, and that was that the sitting room wall by the door leading to the bedroom was splashed with blood and what could only be white flecks of brain matter. Mm. 
And that, I think that was in the presidential suite. Yes. And that was a clipping about a gangland style murder of a mafia type guy who was shotgunned in the face. Ouch. I, don't, I suspect he felt very little pain. You're probably right. <laughs> or he felt a, a lot of pain, but just for a very short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, that, that might be it. This is the time on the episode where we like to thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. We are currently looking at short stories from the Everything's Eventual collection, and we've done 1408, and we're doing another one, and uh, we might do another one before we get into the Shining movie. So if you would like to support the show and get access to those bonus podcast episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Jay, I also wanted to take this moment to thank Bowfinger1542. Oh? Yes, Bowfinger1542, who I hope is either Eddie Murphy or Steve Martin. Perhaps it's both. They probably share an iTunes profile. Yeah, that could be. Left a a fantastic review for us. The title is A Great Podcast. One of my favorite podcasts, these guys are fun to listen to and aren't afraid to criticize King when it is warranted. I marathon through all of the Dark Tower books, and I'm excited to listen to more. Well, thank you very much, Bowfinger1542. We appreciate the review because... That helps others find out about the show. We'd also like to thank another iTunes reviewer, Red-Dog, that's with two Ds and two Gs, who gave us a five-star iTunes review. Red-Dog says, love the podcast. This is the first Stephen King podcast that I have ever listened to. You guys do a great job with helping me to better understand the King universe. Thank you again, Red-Dog. I think it's time for fun stuff. You want to kick us off? Jay, you and I are of a certain age where we are basically Danny, mm. age-wise. And when they had this description of Danny, who was prepared by four years of Sesame Street and three years of Electric Company, he seemed to be catching on with almost scary speed to, to the reading that he's doing. Later on, we learn about Danny. His desk was piled high with picture books, coloring books, old Spider-Man comic books with the covers half torn off crayons, and an untidy pile of Lincoln Logs. The Volkswagen model was neatly placed above these lesser things. The only difference there is I wouldn't think that an old Spider-Man comic was a lesser thing. But other than that, I'm exactly like Danny. I'm sure that Sesame Street and Electric Company were prime reasons why I started reading at an early age. And probably also, you and I were talking about this, the reason that I even like Spider-Man, because yeah, I, I was trying to figure out did I like Spider-Man before he was on the Electric Company or as a result of it? And I realized like I was one when Spider-Man made his first appearance on Electric Company. So there's never been a time in my life when I was unaware of Spider-Man and, and have been a fan of, of him. So Same, same. This whole description of Danny is like spot on for me as well. The only thing I would add to that is Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. And like you, there basically has not been a time in my life when there wasn't some incarnation of Spider-Man on television. And I really wasn't aware of comic books per se when I was Danny's age. I didn't have like comic books in my house like that I was reading, but I knew about Spider-Man. I had like Spider-Man under ruse and I had a Spider-Man folding TV tray Mm -hmm. and things like that. It was Spider-Man was my favorite superhero before I really grasped what superheroes were. He remains one of my favorite superheroes. Yep. Other than not having the shine, I'm exactly like Danny. Yeah. 
or do I have the shine? So the other thing I had in fun stuff, and you alluded to this a little bit ago, is Jack wiping his lips. I did a little bit of a search, Jay, and at least 10 times in this section that we read, there is reference to Jack wiping his lips, either with a handkerchief, with the back of his hands, with his fingers. And as you mentioned, it causes them to bleed and and become irritated. And I guess it's not really fun stuff because if you've ever been someone like myself who I use chapstick all the time, and if I don't have a chapstick on me, I, I start to freak out and get panicked because I know my lips are going to get dry. <laughs> I, I wonder what King's trying to do here. Is this part of the fact that Jack is an alcoholic and he's missing drinking, and this is sort of one of his ways to like try to to comfort himself or or replicate maybe that oral fixation that he might have. I don't know, but it's very obvious that this is a a quirk that Jack has. I'm not familiar enough with alcoholism to say that is this just a tell that King has manufactured for his character, or is this something that many recovering alcoholics do? But it's an interesting question. It was so obvious. I'll be interested to see if this is something that King continues and if it means something more. But what about you? Any other fun stuffs? The last thing I wanted to call out was something that you touched on a moment ago when you were talking about our upcoming patron episodes. We are currently uh, reading The Shining, and we just finished reading for a bonus episode, 1408. Mm. So I'm feeling very meta. Besides both being about haunted hotels, King writes in the foreword to Everything's Eventual that he cherishes the format of the short story. And here, he has his main character in Jack Torrance, who is the author analog in, in this story, thinking about how he would much rather write a book collection of short stories than a novel. <laughs> and it's, it's just like everything is just sort of folding in on itself with this, between yep. these two these two stories being about hotels with supernatural things going on in them, they're, they're written at very different times in King's career. We even made a joke in the 1408 podcast where he says, you know, every writer should write a story about a haunted hotel and then proceeds to write this 1408 story as though he forgot about <laughs> The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> and... I don't see how he could possibly forget about The Shining, but it was just really interesting for us to be covering both of these stories at the same time. Yeah, I agree. What, one interesting difference between King and Jack Torrance that we didn't mention earlier, but probably is a good time to mention here, as we're talking about how they both want to write short stories, is that King obviously reveres Edgar Allan Poe. I don't think it's too strong of a word to say. Like he's called out mm. Poe a few times already in this book and has it as as an epigraph. But Jack Torrance thinks that Poe is a hack. Yeah, which is sort of funny. Well, I think it's actually a ridiculous opinion. Uh, Poe was a trailblazer. He, yeah, I don't, I don't see how anybody could think he's a hack. Yeah, I think the only reason maybe if Jack has some sort of literary pretensions that he thinks he's above horror writing. Which he certainly seems to. So maybe that could be the only thing that he thought, well, Poe is just writing spooky stuff for money and mm. and, and not for the, the love of the work, as opposed to- I thought of that. The, the little bit of a self-deprecating- uh, That and the uh, fact that Poe is also potentially an alcoholic, that maybe Jack has some self-loathing about that. Whatever the case, it is It is sort of funny that, J that Jack just hates Poe. Yes, in yes, indeed. Or at least think he's a hack. Sean, I believe it is time for us to talk about 
a few other worlds than these. I'll start with a book that I finished reading a few weeks ago called The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. Klosterman is a cultural critic, and this is a collection of essays about what was an odd time that was the 1990s that folks of our age, J, Generation X, sort of was like our key growing up time, right? After high school, college, young adults, and this unique point in history where that generation and, and that point of time was in some ways the at the time people thought it was like the end of history, right? The Cold War had had ended. End of history. Yeah, I mean that that was the Fukuyama book that came out that you know about the end of history. And like the Cold War had ended. We're in a time of relative prosperity. People were doing well. And again, I'm being generalized here, right? Straight white Americans were doing well comparatively. There was obviously lots of people who had problems and and Klosterman notes that and doesn't want to diminish that. But this unique time where the internet was starting to come around and this was a it, cell phones were coming around and how everything sort of changed from the beginning of the 90s to the, the beginning of the 2000s and things that happened in that decade are having this sort of long range effect on what's happening now like there was an attack on the world trade center in the early 90s that wasn't very successful and nobody knew at the time like that was like a first attempt at what would happen in 2001 and there were some early weather events that you know would become worse in 2000 with Katrina and things like that and how some of the things led to to things we see today climate change etc as well as like little weird things like Nirvana and how big they became and and other like little pop culture ephemera anyhow if you had all lived through that time there's probably an essay in here that is going to intrigue you in some way so that's the 90s by Chuck Klosterman does Klosterman link these seemingly random things to each other in any way? Yeah, he does. He'll make those connections as well between disparate type events like what was happening with Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court hearings when he was becoming confirmed and the O.J. Simpson trial and other the, the Rodney King beating and all these things that were happening at a similar time and how people's view of them change. So yeah, he does make strange and odd links sometimes that you're like, wait, he, why is he talking about this here? And then over here, and you're like, oh, he'll, he'll make the connection at some point. Okay. Sounds pretty interesting. Uh, I am currently reading, well, actually listening to the audio version of the first book in a series called Bruno, Chief of Police by Martin Walker. Hmm. And it is a detective story. And the titular character, Bruno, is a former soldier turned policeman who has embraced the pleasures and slow rhythms of a country life in the idyllic village of Saint-Denis in the south of France. Walker is a Brit, and he wrote these books in English, but all of the characters and all of the places are in south of France. And hmm. it's a, a part of the world that is very easy to love and beaten entranced by and the writing that walker does just really celebrates everything from the natural beauty of the countryside to the food to the culture you know for example bruno is a he's the chief of police of a small town and he takes great pride in the fact that he doesn't even carry a gun and he knows every single person by name 
And as far as he's concerned, the most important thing of his job as, a, as the chief of police is to help people avoid the scrutiny of the EU food inspectors. <laughs> so while they are selling to each other like uh, foie gras and, and freshly laid eggs from their back house hens, an actual murder happens in the small town and he's involved in solving the mystery. So it turns into you know, a murder mystery like, like many others you might encounter, but it's really cool to just for the story to take place where it does. And for those who of you who know, we don't talk about Bruno. I still don't know what you are talking about. I'm talking about Bruno right now. No, we don't talk about Bruno, Jay. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Shining, Part 3, Chapters 19 through 25. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Seriously, what, what is this Bruno thing and why don't we talk about him? <laughs> You're making jokes and I just don't get it. Poochie had to go back to his planet. My name's Poochie T and I rock the telly. I'm half Joe Camel and a third Fonzarelli. Hey.